Welcome to the Energy Council Podcast Investor Series. Hey guys, welcome to the Energy Council's Investor Series Podcast. I'm your host, Ben West, and today I am joined by Carrie Meadow and Ben Mendez, Executive Chairman and Director at Anvil Channel Energy Solutions. Since recording this podcast, Boomerang Credit Fund has merged with Anvil Energy Partners to form Anvil Channel Energy Solutions. Therefore, please note that any reference to Boomerang Credit Fund now refers to Anvil Channel Energy Solutions. During this episode, Kerry and Ben describe the paradigm shift that they have seen in lenders' appetites towards natural resources companies as a result of increasing regulatory restraints and rising ESG pressures. They also walk us through their strategy to fill the void in the market and provide small to mid-cap oil and gas companies with access to capital, all while providing desired risk-adjusted returns to their investors. Hope you guys enjoy! Hi, Kerry. Hi, Ben. Thanks very much for doing this today. It's great to have you on. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having us. So I've been trying to start the podcast this year with a bit more of a lighthearted question just to start things off so we're not diving too far into the deep end too early on. So I've had a couple of guests on previous episodes to ask them or started by asking them what series, what books they've gone into during the pandemic to get them through, if you like, but uh, I'll put it slightly differently to you both. Is, is there a particular book that you've read that you found particularly interesting or motivational or inspiring that's had a positive impact on you that, that you'd recommend our listeners go and, and give a go? And if so, why is that? And it doesn't necessarily need to be work-related. So yeah, I just thought I'd, I'd start off by putting that question to you. I have a book to recommend. I read it again during the pandemic, but I originally read it probably 10 years ago when I was first going out and buying my first company in the you know chairman, CEO, general partner role. And it's a book called Think and Grow Rich. It's written by a guy named Napoleon Hill. It was written in 1937. And it was one of the first sort of business motivational self-improvement books. It was very groundbreaking in its time. He wrote it because he had learned a lot working with uh, Andrew Carnegie. And it's just a phenomenal book. The messages last almost a century now. And I highly recommend it to anybody who is just looking for a little extra push to get them to take matters into their own hands and go start a business or go do something with their life. It's a fantastic read and very quick. Brilliant. Thanks, Kerry. I'll, I'll be sure to add that to my list. It's a growing list with new recommendations coming in every time that we have someone on the podcast, but that certainly sounds like it'll be worth making time for. So uh, thank you for that. But let's just start things off on a more personal note and by giving a bit of background to set the scene. So Kerry, let's start with you. Um, where did you grow up? What did you study? Where Where did your interest in the energy industry originate? How did you get into the industry? It would just be good for you to take us through your career path up until founding Grade Water and Power a couple of years ago, uh, if you wouldn't mind. Being in the energy market, I'm proud to claim what I would call Texas citizenship. I was born in Texas. I grew up in California, though. And when it was time to go to college, I did my undergraduate work at University of Texas in Austin. And that just has come in handy as I you know, made my way through the oil patch. I didn't study. I studied finance, not petroleum engineering at UT. I was a lawyer for a few years doing corporate work for a, a large law firm. And then I started working for a um, family office and a private equity group of private equity investors. And we really got into the energy business around 2000. So between 2000 and 2010, I ran the private equity group for a publicly traded investment company listed on the Singapore Stock Exchange called K1 Ventures. 
I worked for a gentleman by the name of Ambassador Steve Green. He was a former U.S. ambassador to Singapore, and he's a, an amazing individual and had a, a tremendous effect on my life in, in very formative years. And in that period, we played all up and down the energy complex. Uh, we owned gas utilities in Hawaii and Alaska. We owned uh, barges that transported coal. We owned uh, downstream assets, midstream assets, upstream assets. We owned stakes in large public companies. And then in 2013, I went off and I bought a uh, environmental services business here in California called Patriot Environmental. And Patriot's it's now the probably the largest environmental services business in California. And at the time, about half of its customer base were upstream oil and gas producers in California. And we really got involved in their business and how we could help them cut costs and deal with the regulatory environment in California. We bought wastewater assets. We bought specialized gear and machinery to handle the oil and gas business. And then we diversified into, you know, sort of more generic energy production, mostly utility work. But in 2016, when everybody thought this was the great oil crash, we started partnering in a different investment vehicle with our smaller customers at Patriot to buy non-core assets from our larger customers. And that sort of spawned a whole new business, which has grown quite rapidly. We now own neither operator or non-operating partnership basis, close to 10,000 barrels a day of production uh, all in California. And we've now diversified with Ben's, Ben's leadership into the wastewater uh, business on this side, taking produced water, treating it, and then selling it to uh, municipalities. So uh, we've come full circle. It's been an interesting ride. We've learned two very important things. Number one, hedge. Uh, it'll protect you considerably when things get rough. And then the second thing I've learned is that nobody knows where oil prices are going. Almost every time we thought they're going up, they've gone down. When we thought they're going down, they've gone up. So hedging takes a lot of, of commodity price risk out of the equation because I think we've all learned as well that uh, we have enough operational risk in the business that we don't need commodity price risk. Brilliant. Thanks, Carrier. That's uh, really useful. And we'll come back to touch on a couple of those points later in the episode. But firstly, Ben, let's put the same question to you. Uh, I know you have a background as a petroleum engineer. So just give, it a, give us a bit of context. How did that interest start? Where did you grow up? Uh, what did you study? How did you get into the industry? Just run us through your career journey and, and how you came to join Boomerang Credit Fund recently. Yeah, sure. So I was born and raised in Bakersfield, California, which is kind of the the center of, you know, the oil and gas industry in California. So kind of grew up around the oil fields. I'm actually a fourth generation of my family that's worked in the oil industry. My great grandpa was a pumper for Getty Oil in Santa Paula here in California. My grandpa was a, a reservoir engineer for Union Oil and Unical and for many years. And he was actually a pioneer of some of the first uh, steam flood projects in California back in the 1960s. And then my mom was a, an engineer for Texaco for a few years. And so you could kind of say it's, you know, it's in my blood a little bit. So when I went to college, when I was graduating college, it kind of was a natural thing for me to come back to Bakersfield and, and go to work in the oil and gas industry there. So I went to work for Barry Petroleum in 2008 was my first kind of introduction to the industry. And it was really an interesting time to, to start in the industry. If you remember the summer of 2008 was when oil prices hit $150 a, a barrel and it was like the wild west. We couldn't spend money fast enough. And it was really a, a fun way to get introduced to the, to the industry and uh, go from there. So I spent about 10 years with Barry, mostly focused on heavy oil development in and around Bakersfield, did some work outside of California as well for them, and uh, kind of focused on all aspects of oil field development. And, about three years ago, I came to work for Cary, 
focused on his equity investments in California upstream oil and gas. And um, it was kind of the perfect opportunity for me to kind of use the skills I developed on the engineering side, then go to work for somebody like Carrie, who has much more experience on the financial side and kind of learn that side of the business as well and kind of expand my, my understanding of the business. Brilliant. Thanks, Ben. It sounds like a, a natural path. And as you say, we do find ourselves in considerably different conditions now to when you started back out in, uh, in 2008. But let's continue to set the scene. Kerry, it would be good to get a better overview on the firm. So you're the CEO of Grade Water and Power. It'd be good if you could just give us a quick summary of your current exposure. So for example, are you entirely focused on energy? Uh, how many assets under management do you have? Do you have an asset preference? So for upstream versus midstream versus infrastructure versus renewables? And geographically, where do you focus? What, what's your preference? So we have a, a series of companies that has a lot of overlapping investors, but very few of the entities are actually subsidiaries, uh, wholly owned subsidiaries of one another. So the companies, they range from, as I mentioned, Patriot Environmental. We have a small business here in Los Angeles basin called Sunny Frog Oil. We have a larger business called Grade 5 Oil, and then we have two uh, operated assets, Grade 6 Oil, as well as uh, Kern River Holdings. And then we have a power business called Western Power and Steam. We have a, a renewables business called uh, Pozo Creek Solar Partners. And then we have now the Boomerang Credit Fund. And they're set up with a largely an overlapping but not uniform investor base. And part of that is just my background in my private equity and family office days. The Los Angeles investor community is somewhat interwoven. And so there's a lot of overlap there. And um, when we started this business, we decided to go a slightly non-traditional route of instead of raising a traditional private equity fund, we've set it up as a series of partnerships. And we've liked that approach because I don't feel guilty taking a management fee and then putting money out the door when maybe there's not the right opportunity to buy things. You know, the investors, I guess in my business, when you have a good deal, that there's no shortage of capital. And so having these different entities that are cross-collateralized with one another uh, provides us some flexibility in both how we finance it and the ability to sort of decide, you know, the tenor of the investment. Generally, we like to buy things and hold them forever. Um, there's sometimes adverse tax consequences by monetizing things, particularly in the upstream oil and gas business. And then on the operating business side, it's hard to find great companies. So when we have a great company like Patriot, for instance, there's no reason to sell it. You know, we've been able to recap it a few times and dividend out the money that provides us with the type of, you know, returns to our investors that people like to, to realize while still, you know, owning and controlling a good asset. Today, our focus has been shifted a little bit because of the changing regulatory environment in California. So we went from owning and operating assets here in California under Ben's leadership, mostly heavy oil, steam floods in Bakersfield. You know, the regulators in California are uh, increasingly aggressive in trying to tamp down on some you know, growth initiatives that have, you know, advocated by the oil industry. And as a result, it's hard to justify investing a lot of additional capital when you don't know what the regulators are going to allow you to do with those assets. So that sort of spawned a let's buy PDP. And so today, as I said, it's about 10,000 barrels a day. We love the renewable business and we really are interested in the power business. So, and then as a result of both those, it ties into the water business as well. So 
we're pushing hardest in California right now into the water business. We think that's a great future for us. We're trying to occupy a niche of taking, you know, produced water and repurposing it through a partnership with some leaders, uh, world leaders in cleaning technologies and purification technologies to really serve the agriculture market in California. You know, natural resources, oil, water, et cetera, that's where we're most comfortable. Brilliant. No, that's really useful. And there's lots there that I want to unpick. So let's come on to that shortly. But firstly, you alluded to Boomerang Credit Fund uh, in your response there. So where does that fit into the picture? Does it fall under the same umbrella as Grade Water and Power? Is it a separate entity? When was it set up and with what purpose, what objective? I find it interesting because, as you say, at a time when the regulatory environment is becoming more stringent and more challenging across many states, I mean, you've already alluded to California, but that's not the only place where regulations are tightening. I know that the Biden administration's also shone a light on the oil and gas industry and tightened up its license to operate, if you like. But clearly, you see opportunity to go out and actively pursue oil and gas opportunities in the market. So just give us an overview of Boomerang Credit Fund and how it fits into grade water and power. So in my investing career through you know 20 some odd years in, in the private equity business, the one thing I've learned is that being contrarian pays and investing capital where other people are fleeing is generally a good idea, particularly when it's backed up by hard assets. And so we realized last year when we were looking at some things that there was a complete void in the credit markets for people wanting to lend to smaller, you know, kind of sub $100 million entities because of the credit worthiness. And frankly, because the banks have gotten burned so many times, I think there's been a real permanent paradigm shift in lenders' appetites for to, to lending to natural resource companies, particularly because of these, you know, increasing regulatory constraints uh, compounded with, you know, a big ESG push. And so what we saw was, hey, we have a, a stable of investors made up of largely very high net worth family offices and a couple of insurance companies with whom I've invested with, or I should say they've invested with me for, you know, the better part of, you know, 10 years as, as the principal. And I'm proud to say that we have never lost any money. We, we, our mission is to return capital quickly and let people, you know, recycle that money as they see fit. And so we've built up a lot of trust with our investors. At the same time, our investors are, you know, like everybody else looking for yield. And so we thought, hey, if we can come up with a strategy that fills a void in the market while at the same time providing, you know, desired risk-adjusted returns, you know, to our investors, that there should be something interesting there. And so we pushed into this market last year and we started this really kind of a second half of last year. And what we saw was there was no activity in the market, right? The mergers, you know, the conchos and, you know, those type of uh, those type of mergers that were sort of coming had just maybe started to be announced, but there was no activity. The A&D market was totally dead. Nobody knew where oil prices were going and people were basically frozen and the banks hadn't yet started to, you know, take action on any of the credits. And so now what we're seeing is we really pushed hard into this. And now we're starting to see a lot of things shake loose because as these larger mergers are taking place, like every cycle you're seeing what also happens is people are now you know these merged companies are divesting of these non-core assets so maybe some company who had a 2000 barrel day or 4000 barrel a day field okay they held on to it because they didn't you know didn't see a reason to sell it but now that they're merged with somebody else and they're looking to pay down debt or otherwise just you know streamline their operations 
those assets are coming to market. And where they're going to is to the entrepreneurs. And these guys have either sold assets back to these companies or, or some maybe something similar in the similar field or area. And they know the assets and they're, how I got involved in the oil business in 2016, which was partnering with some entrepreneurs who bought an asset, but they couldn't get any financing for it. And they can't go to a bank. They don't have the credit worthiness to go to the bank. And so we said, hey, let's go partner with the entrepreneurs, those people who can put some capital at work and they're going to work hard. And, and you know what they're putting in means a lot to them, even more so than what a private equity firm will put in or strategic will put in. The entrepreneur, this is his baby, and he's going to put a disproportionately higher amount of his net worth into a deal. And that's the type of guy we want to back. That makes a lot of sense. And it seems like a pretty exciting initiative. And I think there is a, a huge amount of opportunity out there in the market at the moment. And I mean, as you've alluded to, uh, sort of, you have a team of, of oil and gas industry experts. You have access to capital. You want to put that capital to good use. So based on what you're saying, I think it's yours is an interesting story. There's been a lot of hype. As you, said, you know, what, Ben, if I may interrupt, what makes it interesting for us and what distinguishes us is that we are an energy business. And so our team who's used to operating assets can come in there and do a technical review and do an operational review and understand from a real practical standpoint what's true and what's not true and what assumptions are correct and what assumptions need to be challenged. And furthermore, if things do go sideways unexpectedly with the loan, the team has the ability to operate the assets or oversee the operations of the assets. And that distinguishes us from many other lenders. In fact, we bought some debt from Goldman and Alliance Bernstein last year or two years ago in a company called All American Oil and Gas. And the guys at AB, who are terrific guys, they didn't have any experience running an oil company. So we came in there, we bought the debt, and we worked with the company and took it through bankruptcy and ended up owning the assets uh, through a 363 sale. And now we own and operate those assets because our team is able to do that. And I think that from a capital raising standpoint, should we ever need to go out and access you know, capital markets in a larger scale, I think that's a big distinguishing factor in our favor. Absolutely. No, 100%. I completely agree with you. And Ben, on that note, maybe I can come over to you. I'm interested to hear more about your investment approach. Uh, and I suppose what I mean by that is we have spoken on the podcast and behind closed doors with various investors who have really differentiated between the tier one assets out there that offer considerable upside uh, and that are able to generate revenues at a low break-even cost and therefore have favorable economics uh, and the lower tier assets. And I think or if I think back to an episode that we did with Adam Waters in the first half of last year, he was actually suggesting that maybe even up to 75% of oil and gas or upstream EMB, EMP companies across the US may be functionally illiquid because they're sitting on lower tier acreage, lower tier rock, which doesn't have the capability to withstand market and price environments like those of the last year, and therefore are unable to generate long-term uh, value for investors. As Kerry alluded to, I think this has resulted in a huge shift in investor mentality from a growth at all costs approach to a more conservative PDP approach. So I guess with that in mind, what types of investments will you be looking to make and what particular qualities will you be looking for in last? And what type of risk return profiles tick your boxes? Yeah, I think uh, something that Kerry says to us often, right, is that you can fix a bad management team, but you can't fix a bad asset, you know, a bad reservoir. There's no oil there or, you know, the oil is expensive to get out and no amount of expert managing can, can really fix that problem. 
But I think uh, as Kerry kind of talked about, we were focused on upstream oil and gas transactions in the 20 to $100 million range, where we would come in as a senior secured lender. We don't really have a commodity or a basin preference because, you know, on, if it's a good project and it makes money, then that's, you know, uh, going to be one of our important, I guess, boxes that we want to check. We are looking for a PDP base, you know, that can, the solid PDP base that can service the loan with some upside, either, you know, infill drilling program, some kind of PUD development expansion, or uh, a bolt-on acquisition of some kind, some kind of upside so that the company can, you know, take our capital and put it to good use. We think that's really, as Kerry kind of talked about, that's where these companies are going to have difficulty accessing traditional capital avenues. And um, we can, you know, I think another advantage that we provide is that we can stretch up to, you know, 75, 80% with the, uh, with the right entrepreneur and the right set of assets. And, you know, if they've got a good property that they believe in and they want to go execute on, then we'll be right there to support them. I think one thing that we bring to the table is that we can very quickly get up to speed on their base decline, their decline curve analysis, their type curve on their upside. And we can do a very quick in-house technical evaluation and really partner with the company to understand what their development plan is going to look like. Because we understand that not all PUDs are created the same, right? There are certainly some development plans that are much more risky than others. And so we want to have you know, a good understanding of that going into every transaction. No, absolutely. It makes sense. And it seems like an attractive strategy. Um, and Ben, just building on that, I know when we've spoken offline, you spoke about how continuing to invest in the equity market in California is not tenable at the moment. And that regulatory issues mean that there are not too many interesting opportunities on the equity side in California, hence your decision to look further afield. And I know that clearly you as a firm have a lot of technical and operating expertise, which as Kerry rightly said, will prove very valuable if you were to look to raise capital on a larger scale further down the line. But this also presumably provides an attractive alternative to be able to put money into the energy sector, but without having to figure out how to operate in some of these other jurisdictions and basins, like let's say the Permian. Um, you don't necessarily need that local expertise. Exactly. Yeah, I think that hits the nail on the head, right? And and we have looked at doing equity investments in, in other basins. And yeah, like you said, it would be very difficult for us to get up to speed on all the marketing, you know, oil transportation, what the different benchmarks are in different basins and regulatory environment. It's it's much easier for us to find go find the experts and back them and let them do their jobs than for us to try to come into every situation and get up to speed to the point where we would make an equity investment for us to run it. So that's why, as Kerry kind of laid out earlier, that's why we thought this path with Boomer and Credit Fund would be an excellent way for us to diversify our risk across many different basins, many different states, many different regulatory environments, you know, even looking at, at things in Canada so that we can hopefully have 10 or 15 or 20 of these loans spread across the U.S. and Canada and spread our risk around a little bit so that if something happens like what's happening in California now where the regulatory environment is just overwhelming the industry, you know, we can transition to looking to focusing on other areas with other management teams. Ben, if, if I can add to that, Ben, my Ben mentioned Canada. That's a perfect example. We love investing in Canada right now. In fact, in some ways, being a lender in Canada is an easier structure for a company like us than lending in the US. But we couldn't go operate an asset in Canada. I mean, you know, for the first 10 months of the pandemic, we couldn't even go to Canada. So partnering with teams there in a really interesting way to get risk-adjusted returns for our investors that approach equity-like returns, 
in some instances. You know, we've raised about $500 million for this strategy between a couple of family offices and an insurance company. And we think we can deliver, you know, high teens type of returns to these investors on a very, you know, smart, diversified basis. And that does include going cross-border. And that is something we would not be able to do if we were just being an equity investor looking to back a, a management team. And so it does give us some flexibility. And again, just emphasizing on Canada, it's a very ripe opportunity given the constraints that the regulators have in, on the banks in Canada are probably even more onerous than what they have in the U.S. today. So for all the Canadian listeners out there, please give us a call. We would like to uh, partner with you. No, it's, it's an interesting point. And I, I don't know if you, you can just touch a little bit more on exactly why, sort of how Canada compares with the U.S. market. Why is that? So what exactly about the, that regulatory environment and the frameworks they have to, to work within there? What makes that attractive and, and so accessible to a firm like yours? So Canada has a different set of bankruptcy laws. You know, one of the challenges of investing in the U.S. when you have a loan that goes bad is that the management team can often, you know, through the, the debtor exclusivity period, get that extended time and time again. I mean, with both Brightburn and with Lynn Barry, when they were in bankruptcy, I mean, it was they were, they were in there for two years with, with the exclusivity. And that just ate up, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in fees to lawyers and bankers. In Canada, if a loan goes sideways, basically the lender can step in almost immediately. And that is an advantage for guys like us who can oversee operations or, you know, we can parachute, you know, our guys in there, you know, pretty quickly. And they know enough about the oil business. They may not, not know exactly in that geography or that type of lift mechanism, what's going on, but but they know enough. And we have a, a series or uh, a seasoned team that can go in there and oversee the guys who are, you know, figuratively turning the wrenches. So that's an advantage for us. What in conversely, because the regulators in, in, of Canadian financial institutions are more, I guess, progressive. In Canada, there are different capital requirements that have been set by the regulators to protect the consumers. And as a result, a lot of these Canadian banks are no longer able to hold the amount of oil and gas loans that they previously were allowed to. And we think that's a nice opportunity because the risk didn't change at all, just the regulations changed. No, it makes sense. And it's interesting to have that cross-border perspective, which is not something that we've touched on in previous episodes. So I, I just wanted to dig a little deeper there. But before we wrap it up, I have, I have two more things that I want to touch on. And I think tying it back into grade water and power, Ben, I know you've previously mentioned that you partnered each one of your oil field assets in Bakersfield to a power project and that you sell the power to yourselves and sell the rest to PG&E. Kerry, I know you spoke earlier in the episode about the synergies between different business lines and different investments that you make. I don't know if either of you can go into a bit more detail about how this works and why this is an attractive approach, what the dynamics are. Is this something you'll be looking to replicate in future investments that you make? Sure. The two power assets we have are a 20 megawatt solar plant where it's, it's completely behind the meter and we sell power to ourselves and to our operating partner. And then the other one is a, a 20 megawatt cogen plant where we generate power and, um, and also steam for our steam flood development. And really, it's all about efficiency, right? As you've heard from Carrie and you, you would hear from our CFO, Paul, right? They, they come from more of a finance background and it's all about, you know, either increasing your revenue or decreasing your expenses. It's very basic, right? It doesn't matter if the well makes 100 barrels a day or not, or if it hits a tight curve. 
it's about increasing your revenue or decreasing your expenses. And that's what these power assets allow us to do. In fact, they do both, right? So we sell power to ourselves. So we reduce our reliance on PG&E. We reduce our power bill and our lifting cost. And in California, there's a specific credit market when you pair a renewable energy with oil development, you're reducing your carbon intensity. And so you develop these low carbon fuel standard credits. And that's just another revenue stream for grade water and power. And so it's all about being flexible and being creative and, and putting our capital to good use. So if we can invest some money up front to reduce our long-term lifting costs and to generate some long-term revenue, you know, we're going to choose that every day. We're not, Carrie likes to say this, you know, we're not looking to be oil barons where we, you know, are just looking to prove up as many reserves as we can. That's great. That's our core part of our business. But ultimately we want to be efficient with our capital. And it doesn't matter if we're increasing the revenue by drilling more wells or decreasing the, the lifting costs by becoming more efficient on, on ben, the cost side. And then I want to add to that, Ben, because you're spot on. The regulations in California, as onerous as they are on oil companies, actually do provide opportunities, um, if you understand the regulations, to do well by living within them. And that's what these LCFS credits are about. So when we built a you know, the 20 some odd megawatt solar farm, we are getting two revenue streams. Not only are we getting power revenue from ourselves and our partners, but we get these LCFS credits, which provide us with unlevered returns in the 20% level, which is pretty much unheard of anywhere in the solar investing universe today. And that's uh, not even including some of the regulatory tax benefits that come with it. But the other reason why we really like the power business, which is the same as the water business, and I'm going to sort of group those into one, is that with scale, you the multiples you get from recurring revenue streams like that are really strong. And, and then there's obviously, it's not a depleting asset, you know, like it is in the energy business. So you have a higher terminal value. So you put those two together and from an investor standpoint, hey, this is really interesting. And then there's this derivative. Last thing is the derivative benefit of if you can show the regulators that you're doing pretty good on the water side and creating new water and working with them on some of their goals, they may be a little more willing to help you on the regulatory front on the energy on the oil production side. At least that's our hope. We haven't actually seen that yet. So that's probably maybe some delusional thinking, but at least we feel good about it. And it does tie into kind of the overall ESG movement, which is real and is not going away. And if you, I think you need to embrace ESG and that's hard to do as an oil company, which is why in California, from an operational perspective, we would like to consider ourselves a water and power and energy business. And hence the name of our company used to be grade six oil and now it's grade water and power. Cause I think that more accurately reflects where our company is going as good citizens of the state. Actually, Ben, if I could, could I just add one more yes, point no. on, on the no. end there from Perry? As you talked about before, right, our water treatment project, we're taking our own excess produced water and going to treat it and sell it to a, a local water district for agricultural use. That is, again, just about being efficient and investing capital to take a waste product, what's currently a waste product that costs us money to dispose of, treating it and selling it and, and adding a revenue stream to our business is is the kind of thinking that we want to put into these investments with Boomerang Credit Fund, right? If, if we partner with a company and they are doing their development and in, in wherever they are in, in the Permian, and it makes sense for them to put in some kind of power project or a water treatment project there, we know all about it and we'd be happy to help them out with it as long as, as, as it makes sense and it's going to hit the type of returns that we want to hit. That's, I think, the message here is that we've done it ourselves and we would look to do the same thing with Boomerang. 
Absolutely. Thanks, Ben. And I just wanted to touch then on some of the points you made about ESG regulations. Do you think there is a risk then? I know you say you're looking outside of California at the moment because of these tightening restrictions. I mean, we're entering into a period of undeniable disruption and change. Is there a risk that regulations are going to tighten in other states? And, and I suppose if they do, this experience you've had in California will actually position you well to create value for those partners, organizations that you partner with. I think, Ben, that the regulations that are going to tighten quickest are going on the federal level, which does have an impact on the individual states. What you're seeing a lot of right now is a ban on new leases on federal lands. And I think that the nominated interior secretary, the congresswoman from North, excuse me, from New Mexico, who's an extremely bright woman and understands the issues, nevertheless is going to clamp down on additional fracking and additional oil development throughout the West, where so much of it occurs on federal land, BLM land in particular. As a result, I think you're going to see those type of federal regulations dwarf what's going on on the state level. The big oil producing states are red states, you know, Texas, North Dakota, Oklahoma, et cetera. New Mexico is a little bit of an outlier there. So the, the federal regulations are going to be the biggest impact. And on a somewhat related note, I think that the, the push for a greener, cleaner economy is something that works really well when oil prices are high. I think that it's somewhat counterintuitive, but I think the environmentalists will have more success in pushing green initiatives when oil's at 60 and 70 than they would at 30 and 40, because people will feel differently about buying an electric car when oil's at $2 a gallon versus when it's at $4 a gallon. It's just common sense. So I think that it's perverse to think that the environmentalists want to see a higher oil price, but I think that's just market dynamic. Altogether, I think it bodes really well for us as uh-huh. lenders. A hundred percent. Thanks, Kerry. And and just finally, then, before we wrap up, one of the most important factors behind any investment decision, of course, is the management team that you're investing in. If we touch on this theme of change as the energy sector is entering this new decade, which, as we've alluded to, is likely to be a period of significant change and disruption, I'd be interested to get your take on how important the management teams that you partner with are when assessing an investment opportunity. And, And just to build on that, what types of management teams would you be looking to invest in and partner with and why? Let me start with that, Ben, and then I'll let you add. So I want people like Ben. I want smart, hardworking, driven people who are technologically savvy and who understand where the world's going and are realistic. The single most important factor in a management team is for them to understand that bad news has to travel faster than good news. Because there just has to be reality and honesty and candor in decision making. And you can't do that if you're in denial. Guys who are entrepreneurs get that. Guys who have experience, that's really important. But equally important is understanding that the world is changing and what drives economics. As Ben said, we're not oil impresarios and we don't want to back oil impresarios. We want to back guys who want to make money. We're investors. We want to make money. That's our business. And so partnering with people that are young and driven and want to make money too, that's what we're looking for. And then on top of that, I guess it sort of overlays everything. It's just honesty. 
you know, people who are honest, both with themselves and with their partners about the good and the bad. As operators, we know that a lot of things don't go exactly as planned in the oil field. So you got to be honest about it. And then you got to react quickly. You know, as an investor, one thing we can strive to do time and time again is give our potential borrowers a fast answer. A fast yes or a fast no are the two best answers. They're much better than slow maybes. And from an operating perspective, we want the same thing. We want people to be responsive and to be reactive and not to sit around and contemplate a million different permutations. You're never going to make 100% of the right decisions. But the faster you make decisions, the faster you get onto the next decision. Thanks, Gary. I think it makes a lot of sense. And it's nice to lay it out in black and white like that and, and to simplify it. A fast yes or a fast no. I like that. I, th I think that'll stick. But anyway, I, I could ask many more questions, but time's coming to an end, so I'll try and wrap it up. So, Kerry, Ben, it, it's been great speaking with you. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your views on the industry, to share your approach towards the industry. It sounds like you've got an exciting couple of years ahead, and, and I'll certainly be keeping a keen eye out for, on your activity in the market to see how things play out for you. But to wrap it up, I'd like to hand it over to you just for some closing comments to summarize what we've talked about, to share your views on the next steps for the industry, any partnership opportunities you'd be interested in hearing about. So over to you to give a, a closing message to any of your industry peers listening in. Well, Ben, I just want to thank you for your time and for your audience. And I hope that the people, you know, what we say has resonated with them. We're big believers in the future of the energy business. And to the extent that there are listeners of yours who are interested in what we have to say and are looking for financing, you know, please reach out to us. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you and working with you and learning from everybody. It's an iterative process and we'll see what the future holds for everybody. Thank you for your time. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to speak with Carrie or Ben about any of the points that they have raised during today's episode, or if you'd be interested in exploring potential partnership opportunities with Anvil Channel Energy Solutions, then please visit www.anvilcp.com or email me at benjamin.west at energycouncil.com. The Energy Council represents the most senior and influential network of energy executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our clients to help them to place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about the ways we can help your team by connecting you with executives like Carrie and Ben, then please email me directly or visit our website at www.energycouncil.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network who you think would enjoy them. Thanks, and see you next time.